I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read all the way through the end of the chapter. It's only 13 verses. So this is the word of the Lord. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called idols or gods in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are, are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother, brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore... If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Pray with me. Lord, now as we return again to this wonderful letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in the middle 50s AD, our hearts are drawn in to your word and we are excited to hear what you have to say. But Lord, I know that we all come into this room with various types of concerns and frustrations and baggage. Lord, I just want to pray that if that brother or sister is here today struggling in some way, that Lord, that the, the, the fruit of this time together would be that your word would cause life to be brought to my brother or sister. I pray you would convict the comfortable. I pray you'd afflict them, but I pray that you would comfort the afflicted. Do this for your name's sake, Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Most of you know this, I've shared this in different settings before, and I'm going to have you pull me down a little bit because, yeah, I, I don't want to whisper the whole time. Uh, most of you have heard this before, but my wife and I are originally from uh, the biggest little state in the Union, Rhode Island. Now, my folks uh, still live there. I have a brother who still lives there, but other than them being there, I don't really miss it all that much. Uh, we've lived in the South for our entire marriage now, which was 17 years and more. Uh, the climate is just so much nicer here. The, the, the people are much nicer here, too. 
But there's one thing that I do miss about Rhode Island. Anybody know what it is? Anybody ever been to Rhode Island? I know you guys have. There's one thing I miss about Rhode Island. It's the food. The food. There's a, a large Italian population in Rhode Island, and a lot of the folks that are there are only a couple of generations removed from those who actually lived in Italy, Italy at one time. So that means that uh, there are restaurants and bakeries almost on every corner. And, and when I say restaurant, uh, I'm not talking about Olive Garden, okay? I'm, I'm talking about the good stuff. I'm talking about uh, places with Italian grandmas and grandpas who make their own homemade, home-fresh pasta and their own gravies, which we call up there is actually red sauce, but their sauce and sausage and peppers and meatballs and Italian subs and all the, the best food that you've ever eaten. And, and, and the bread, the bread is the best bread I've ever eaten. It's hard and crunchy on the outside. It's soft on the inside. Most every restaurant will bring bread to your table, just like, a, for example, a Mexican restaurant in the South brings chips and salsa to your table. You get bread as part of the deal. Now, I'm sorry to bring up food on a day that we're beginning a week-long fast as a church. Uh, but the Lord has providentially led us to a chapter that has to do with eating. Biblically speaking, bread is a staple of human life. This has been true throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, the ancient Hebrews counted it along with water as essential to life. Uh, Jesus talked a lot about bread. He gave bread to people. He broke bread. He multiplied bread. He told his disciples to pray for their daily bread, which, of course, referred to provision for their basic needs. Bread is a really simple food. It's really made only of, of some kind of grain, uh, yeast to make it rise and to give it its flavor, water, salt, and you combine all those things together, you throw it in the oven, knead it, bake it, throw it in the oven, and enjoy it. My wife's not here, so I can say this, and she makes some of the best homemade bread, and I still eat it even though it hurts my stomach. But there is another ingredient that is essential to human life. More specifically, an ingredient that is essential to the Christian life. It's a staple without which neither Christian nor church can survive. And if you've been paying attention through this study, you have seen that Paul has woven it throughout his instruction thus far, though he's only used it by name sparingly. What is that ingredient? You guessed it, love, love. As we can see here, Paul has moved on again to a, a new subject in the letter, but he's still answering questions that the Corinthians have asked him, them, him. He's still concerned for their holiness before the face of God. But you'll notice today that the accent of his instruction is increasingly being placed on the way in which the decisions they make and the behavior they exhibit affect their fellow brothers and sisters. And like a gold thread tying everything together, self-giving love is the goal of his instruction really in the entire letter. In certain places, like in chapter 13, which we'll get to, it's very pronounced, it's, it's shimmering. But in other places, you see it beneath the surface, and you've got to squint to make it out. But it's obvious. In this letter, Paul is, is conveying a message. Paul, Paul wants us to see that biblical love drives his system of ethics. 
those moral principles that guide a person's behavior. Paul is saying like yeast and bread, love is the necessary ingredient of the Christian life. And here in chapter 8, it's, it's as if he's saying, you need to add, as one commentator says, the leaven of love to your relationships. Just as yeast causes bread to rise and give it flavor, Paul says, love builds the body. Love flavors it so that in every season, whether hard or peaceful, the church will remain healthy and effective in the middle of the culture in which it lives. Here's the deal, Gray City Church. Without love, we are nothing. We're nothing. And in our text today, once again, Paul is dealing with a unique situation that was unique to the first century, in Corinth in particular. But oh my, is there a lesson for us? Church, we rise or fall to the degree that love governs our relationships together. Paul wants this church to put off the old man, which was a selfish man, and to put on the new man, which is a man that is humble, that loves as Christ has loved him. So if you're taking notes today, the title of this sermon is a simple one, The Necessary Ingredient of Love. I'm going to give you three points by which we'll study this text. If you want to write them down, and then I'll go through each of these. Uh, The first is love is the highest good. The second is love begins with God. And the third is love is indispensable to our relationships. The highest good, it begins with God, and it's indispensable in our relationships. So number one, love is the highest good, verses one and two. So what are we dealing with here? Well, Paul very clearly lays out a a topic that he will cover essentially over the course of the next three chapters, and that topic is this. It's this whole matter, this whole idea of food that was eaten that had formerly been offered up in idol worship. Now, chances are most of us have not been in a pagan temple before and offered up food to idols. So chances are this is an unfamiliar subject to our modern Western ears. But if you were a member of the church in first century Corinth, which was a highly polytheistic society, in other words, there are many gods that they worshipped, idol worship, false god worship, was extremely common. It was very common for a pagan person, which was most of the city at that time, to offer up either an animal or some kind of grain to the God of their choice, at the temple of their choice, as a regular part of their daily routine. Once they offered up that food, once it was cooked, what would happen was is they would take a portion of that food, they would eat it themselves in the temple, the priest would also eat some of that food, and the rest of it, they would take that meat, they would package it up, and they would send it out to the markets to be sold. Those were the grocery stores of the day. In fact, most of the restaurant food in Corinth probably passed through an idol's temple. And many temples even served as sort of ancient restaurants where folks would come to eat. Not like restaurants like we think about. They would go to the temple. They would say, what's on the menu? Well, we have goat today. Great, serve it up. That's where they would eat their meal. So now place this church, this church in Corinth, in this cultural setting. 
A majority of this church were once pagan polytheists. The minority were once religious Jews who, of course, were forbidden to eat food offered to false gods. But all of them had an experience of saving grace through the preaching of the gospel. And now take this group of Christians, scholars think it's a what, about 100, 120 people or so. And you have some in this group that Paul refers to as the strong, and their new way of life in Christ erased all of their attachments to past idolatry. They have clear consciences, and with a free conscience, they're able to eat whatever is put in front of them without giving it a second thought. But then you have this other group that Paul calls the weak. These are men and women who are equally born again, equally saved by grace, but immediately what they do when they see meat coming their way is they associate it with past idolatry. And so with a vexed conscience, they simply cannot eat meat they know has passed through an idol's temple. Why? Because it would trigger bad memories. It would vex their conscience. Now, we could liken this today to maybe, maybe certain music that you as a believer used to listen to in your past. And every time you hear that music, it, it automatically puts you back in the place where you were doing the things that you should not have been doing. And so when you hear that music, it, it just triggers your conscience and you don't want to hear it anymore. Or maybe we'll liken it to a believer who has had a past of alcohol or substance abuse and the smell or even the sight of alcohol can bring back painful memories of their past. That's kind of what Paul is talking about here. So concerning this issue in Corinth, Paul quotes this church. Look at verse 1. He says, concerning this idea of offering food to idols, we know that all of us possess, not possess knowledge. That word that in the original indicates that Paul is using direct speech. Paul is quoting, that's why there are quotes in your Bible, he's quoting this phrase probably from the letter that the Corinthians wrote to him. So the question is, what's going on? What's going on? What is he talking about? Well, in our reading of the chapter, there are obviously some in the church who are advocating for their right to eat whatever they want on the basis of their knowledge on the basis of their freedom. We can sort of imagine how their letter to Paul went. He said some, they said something like this. Now, Paul, there are some here in our church who think that when it comes time for dinner, they would eat dinner together a lot, we shouldn't eat meat that passed through an idol's temple. But, Paul, I don't get it. All of us share the same knowledge. We all know that we've been accepted by God on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice, not on the food that we eat. He's freed us from our former way of life. And so Paul says in response, I agree. We know that the gospel is wonderfully freeing. But here's the deal. Your knowledge is not humbling you. It's making you arrogant. It's puffing you up. You see, friends, for some in the Corinthian church, they had prioritized and prized truth so highly, which is a good thing. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. We ought to prioritize the truth. So many of the problems in the church today are because churches do not prioritize the truth of God's word. 
But these people prioritize truth so highly that instead of that truth leading them down the path of love for one another, that truth was making them turn against each other. It was making them arrogant against each other. Knowledge mixed with the remaining sin nature was causing them to demand the right to live as they pleased without regard for the effect that their lifestyle had on others in the church that had a weaker conscience. In other words, freedom, rights, became their highest good. So what they knew was causing disunity and possibly even provoking others among them to sin. People in this church weren't merely being offended by the choices that were being made. Paul really deals with that in Romans 14, and it'd be an interesting study to pull this chapter in Romans 14 next to each other and study them, and I commend you that to, that, that, to do that. But people aren't being merely offended here. Paul is saying in this chapter that their actions were actually leading others astray. Their actions were actually leading people into sin. That's why, listen, that's why Paul contrasts here knowledge with love. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not that knowledge and love are opposites. These people just prized knowledge above love, and Paul wants them to see what bare knowledge does when it's void of love. Friends, listen, knowledge void of love inflates us. It isolates us on our thrones with an attitude that pushes others down at our feet, expecting others to conform to our wisdom. I I once knew a guy that was so vocal about his Christian beliefs, but he gave so little thought to how those beliefs landed on his unbelieving family. And over the years, little by little, his family began to cut him off. His truth was not leavened with love. Now, Paul would say, you've got it all wrong, church. You think you know what builds up, but it's puffing you up. You think you've arrived in the Christian life, but none of us have. Look at verse 1 again. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, that he's attained, that he doesn't have to learn anything else, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Wow. Friends, do you know what the, who the most godly people are? The most godly people are not the ones who have so neatly a packaged theology and who are so able to apply the gospel to every part of their personal life. No, Paul says the most godly people are those who love their fellow brothers and sisters at great cost to their own freedoms. David Garland, the commentator, says it so well. He says, presuming to possess knowledge gives one a false sense of superiority and security. Love deflates the vanity and arrogance that knowledge feeds and disarms it so that it is not used to hurt others. Friends, I think just right from the start, we ought to ask ourselves a question. What is the goal of our faith in Jesus? What's the goal? 
We who are of the reformed vein of theology have historically placed a huge emphasis on right doctrine. And again, that is a good thing. Right doctrine makes us stand or fall as well. But as good reformed people, isn't it easy to subconsciously prioritize knowing things about God and having a neatly packaged theology that we forget that the end goal of good theology is not personal advancement. The end goal of good theology is worship. It's making much of Jesus. Now let me let you in on a little secret. Worship is not merely personal. Worship is corporate. At least the fruit of worship is corporate. And if you say, what do you mean by that? Just open up the letter of 1 John and just read the whole thing and then come back. John wrote a whole letter about this. He says in 1 John 3.10, But this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Friends, when we become a, a, a born-again believer by faith in Jesus, we become a part of the family of God. But friends, if our faith does not lead to a life of love toward our brothers and sisters as evidenced by our actions, we should not say with a clear conscience, I am a Christian. I am a godly man. Truth, listen, truth never overrides love in Christianity. Those are twin virtues. If you kill truth or you kill love, you kill Christianity. You cannot have both. You must have both. You cannot eliminate one. If you have truth without love, you're cold and hard. If you have love without truth, you're nothing but a sentimental person. Paul knows this truth, and he sees it happening. And so he wants to weave love back into this church. Now, Paul has a lot more to say, but let's just answer that question for ourselves. What's the goal of our faith? What is the highest good of our faith? Is it knowing? Or is it knowing with love, which looks out for the well-being of others? Love is the highest good. But let's flesh out this idea a bit more about love being the fruit of right worship. Number two, love begins with God. Look at verse three. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and earth, indeed there are many gods and lords, for us there is one God and Father and one Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. Now I've chosen to group verse 3 together with 4 through 6 because I think it proves a point. Paul here wants to give a response to the know-it-alls in the Corinthian church who prize personal freedom above love of brother. He's already shown us in verses 1 to 2 the principle that must govern our conduct, that love is our highest good, our highest aim. Here he's giving a theological hook to hang that principle on. Because you see, friends, in every age, people have their way of promoting good in a society without involving God at all. 
Listen, some of the most compassionate people are among the most godless. And if this church in Corinth, or if Grace City Church, is going to understand how absolutely vital self-giving love among its members is for the health of the church, then our love better have its roots planted in the origin, the source, the creator of love. Love himself, John says, God, Father God. So then what truth about their relationship to God does Paul want to be the filter through which they relate with a weaker brother or sister? When we say weak, we just mean having a weaker conscience. Here's the truth Paul gives. The only true God through whom we owe even our existence, listen, knew us before we knew him, let alone before we loved him. These Corinthians were boasting in the fact that they knew things about God, that they knew the way of salvation. But Paul says, no, 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 you got to wait a second here. Wait a moment. If any one of us can say with a straight face and with any measure of assurance that they have love for God in their heart, it is not because of knowledge that you somehow have attained. Friends, never believe for a moment that if we're a Christian here today, it's because we heard truth and then we believed it. Put it out of your head that your faith is somehow based on a decision that you made somewhere in your past. If any one of us in this room have love for God, it's surely because he called us to himself. We are the ones, like Nathaniel under the fig tree, who Jesus saw long before he ever saw him. Our identity and our acceptance with God comes not from our knowledge of him, but through, but through his knowing us through his son. Ephesians 1, before the world was made, God saw his church in Christ and chose us in Christ and predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ. We're the direct objects in that chapter, friends. So like Paul said to the Galatians, he wants this church not to boast that they know things about God, but that he knows them. That's our testimony. I remember the day back in 2003 that my now wife was given saving faith. She and my mom went for a walk around a lake and my mom shared the simple gospel message with her. She shared that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that if she would right here, turn to him and trust in the sacrifice that he paid for her sins to remove the wrath of God from her. She would be born again. She would be saved. She'd be given new life. She'd receive life in his name. And so evidently seeing in my wife's eyes a desire, a hunger to know this truth, my mom said, hey, would you like to pray with me? And so they prayed together. This is the kind of thing we make fun of when we reform people. They prayed together. Now, back where I was in my grandparents' house playing cards, they come into the house, and my mom says, Michelle's been saved. 
And my grandmother says, Michelle, welcome to the family. And if you ask Michelle now, she'll think that grandma was saying, welcome to our, welcome to the Earl family. But that's not what she was saying. She was saying, welcome to heaven's family. And stupid me pipes up, airing all of my bad theology like a dirty laundry. And I said, but how? She doesn't know anything. And Michelle will often look back on that day. And she will often say, you're right, I didn't know anything. But I did know this. That when I started on that walk, I was one way. And when I finished with that walk, I was a different person. And I can say today, she's still the same, different person. If anyone loves God, it is because he or she is known first by God. If there is any truth that we're to get, if there's any truth that Paul wants to control the relationships in Corinth, these people's relationship with each other, it's this. Note how Paul drapes this truth over the problems in Corinth in verse 4. They're saying things like, but Paul, idols have no actual existence, and there's no other God but the true God, presumably as an argument for being able to eat in temples, idol temples. And Paul agrees with this. There may be many so-called gods in the world, and subjectively for some, there are indeed many types of deities, many types of gods, many types of lords. But, he says in verse 6, for us, that is the church, there is only one God and Father, the creator and source of all, and one Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator, the agent of our existence. So his point is, we recognize that idols are not real, but the thing is, for some they are. And today in this room, some of us carry associations from the past. Maybe associations with different forms of entertainment or activities or places that you once visited. And those associations are to you like an Achilles heel. And though God has delivered you from your sin, has delivered you from death through his son, you feel as though those things are still very much a part of you. And so you avoid them at all costs. Brothers and sisters, if we know someone in our body who has such a weakness as that, it could be a spouse, it could be a child, since we belong to God, who brought us to himself and is redeeming all things, including and especially our weak brother or sister. Listen, we worship him rightly only when the fruit of our worship is love of brother above the exercise of our own personal freedoms. Now, I must hurry along if we're going to make some application here. Because this is the point that Paul's now going to make. Number three, love is indispensable. Love is indispensable in our relationships. Here's where Paul gets to the heart of his argument. He seems to be saying that among Christians in the church, even though each knows the truth of the gospel, theoretically, conceptually, They know there are one God, that their idols are not real. Not all of them know this experientially or or practically. In other words, they, they all have head knowledge about God when they're thinking rightly. 
And that head knowledge frees them. It liberates them to live their lives with a wonderful freedom and peace. But when it comes to a particular subject in their lives, what they know is not yet experienced in their heart. It's like the story of the pastor who taught a whole sermon series on suffering. And he spoke deep, helpful truth because the scripture has a whole lot to say on the subject. And it's truth that changes them and it's truth that he knew with his mind and it's truth that the church knew with their minds. But it wasn't until one of their very own beloved church members lost her husband in a horrible car wreck that the truth about suffering became real, not just in their head, but in their hearts, and they felt it. Paul is saying it's true. Food does not commend us to God. He doesn't accept us or reject us if we eat food or if we don't eat this, eat food. You know this with your head, but some of you once worshiped in idols' temples. And to engage in eating idol meat would sear your conscience like a hot iron. You know the truth objectively in your head. But those idols have a subjective reality in your heart. And friends, in churches today and the world, the world over, there are faithful, godly men and women who love Jesus just as much as the rest of us who were bound by all kinds of similar subjective realities. There may be people in this very room have been, who have been so hurt by a significant other that you'll never be able to open your heart again to somebody else, or at least you think that. There are those in this room who lived a life before Christ of substance abuse, and even the thought of a pill makes you shake inside. There are those maybe in this room who have seen so much abuse in a local church that they cannot possibly fathom that the church, the local church, is the object of Christ's love. You can't imagine that. So based on everything that we've heard, how does Paul instruct the strong? Here, those who have a neatly packaged theology, how does he instruct the strong to relate with those who have a weak conscience, those who are unstable due to their lack of confidence in what they know is true? Look at verse 9 and following. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed, this brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Paul says, brothers and sisters, be careful that your rights, that your freedom to act as you please does not somehow become a stumbling block to those who are among us who you know are weak. That word stumbling block to us just sounds like a little stone or an object on the floor like when our kids leave their, their toys out and we trip over it. That's not the idea that Paul has in mind here. In the original, this, this word stumbling block is much more threatening. 
A stumbling block refers to that which prevents a person from reaching the finish line. That which crushes, that which disables. This isn't a speed bump slowing them down. This is dirt in the engine. This is water in the gas tank. Things that will most assuredly lead to total breakdown. Paul says, don't you get it? If your weaker brother or sister sees you eating food that's passed over an idol's flame, won't your exercise of freedom provoke them to do the same thing because they know you better than you do? And because their conscience is weak, will lead them back into the practice of idolatry? And friends, it might not be idolatry to to you, but to his conscience, that is exactly what it is. And so rather than building him up, you're making him fall. Your freedom is the gateway to his stumbling and his falling and his woundedness and his being destroyed. And Paul says, by the way, this one, this one is the very one for whom Christ stumbled and Christ fell. And Christ was wounded. And Christ was destroyed on the cross. When we do this, we're not sinning just against a person. We're not sinning against the least of these only. We are sinning against Christ. So Paul says, I don't care that the best meat comes from an idol's temple. I don't care that the best steak I ever had comes from a restaurant in an idol's temple. If that's the case, I will never meet, eat, again, meet, eat meat again. In Corinth, it was really hard to discern what meat passed over an idol's altar. So Paul says, if I can't tell where that meat came from, I'm not going to eat tainted meat in front of my brother for whom Christ died because I love him more than I love my belly. You see, dear ones, without love, we're nothing. We can have all the knowledge and all of our theological I's dotted and all of our T's crossed, but if we fail to love those among us who do not, we miss the goal of our faith altogether. Because, loved ones, the reality is Christ came to us Not when we had four years of seminary training and seminary knowledge. Not when we had a lifetime behind us of honoring God as the model disciple of Jesus. No, he came to us all, Romans 5, when we were his enemies. When we were powerless to help ourselves, Paul says. When we were sinners, Christ came for us. So, loved one, who who is the one in your life? Who is the one in your missional community? Who is the one in your place of work who is weaker than you are? What holds that relationship together with that one? Is it superficial and artificial, made up of handshakes and hugs, and I'm praying for use? Or does the gold thread of love 
bind you together in perfect harmony? Does, is your life leavened with love for that brother or sister? Now, in a moment, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper, but I wanted to close with just a, a few points of application for you to think on. Uh, just know all these things are by grace alone. You can't do these things in your own strength. These are just things that the Spirit, I trust, will use to get us thinking. Let me just give these to you, three of them real quickly, and then I'll have Aaron come. Number one, number one, meet people where they are. Meet people where they are. Meet, M-E-E-T, not M-E-A-T. Everyone carries, into the, in this room, everyone carries painful associations of the past. Everyone in this room does. I don't care how smiley you are, you carry things from your past. Paul knows this, we know this, but the truth is, is we all hide those things really well. And sometimes it just takes the right situation to draw that stuff out. And if our, as our brother and sister especially if I am the one responsible for injuring their conscience. My job is not to help them correct them where they're believing wrongly. God calls me and you to adjust for the sake of others. With a self-giving love of Christ, depending on God's sustaining grace. And that adjustment, that love may mean that I need to ask for somebody's forgiveness and then cease to ever do what I've done ever again. Meet people where they are. Number two, resist the temptation to judge. Listen, friends, we all know we know things. When we see our brothers and sisters doing things we would never do, it's so easy for us, isn't it, to say, why are they doing that? I wouldn't do that. I can't believe they were doing that. Look what the Bible says. Why are they doing that? That's so foolish. And all the while, we're just wishing that they would climb on up to our theological summit and see things from our point of view. Guys, listen, God has not appointed you and me as the district court judge of the brothers and sisters in this church. Understand that. Yes, we are to come alongside one another, but never look down on one another. Paul says in Romans 14, it's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. That brother, that weak brother, will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That guy's on a journey, just like we're on a journey. Remember years ago, I listened to a Tim Keller sermon. I wish I could remember the name or the text or the title or anything about it. I don't remember anything about it, but I remember this part. He said he was talking about sanctification. You know, that, that process, that ongoing process by the Holy Spirit where he makes us more like Christ. He was talking about sanctification. He said, listen, he said, some believers enter the Christian life at like a four on the morality scale or a five. They've had a pretty good upbringing. They know how to do the right thing. They know to say yes and no. And they, they're able to, and they, they seem to be further along than the other guy. But others enter the Christian life at like a zero on the morality scale. They have a really, really bad background. They were not raised in a good Christian home. He says, you know what? In the sight of God, 
that brother and that brother are both equally justified, both equally declared righteous, because their righteousness has nothing to do with their merits but Christ's. They are both equally justified in the sight of God. Friends, the brother that I'm tempted to judge is the, listen, the moment-by-moment recipient of the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. They may not see things as I do, to be sure, but they are still the direct object of God's grace. So who am I to pass judgment or criticism on a fellow recipient of the grace of God when I myself was equally an enemy in the sight of God when he saved me. Joel Beakey, the theologian, says it, well, self-glorification is unbefitting for those who are natively bankrupt. Resist the temptation to judge. Third and last, love others more than food. Love others more than food. You know, in the society we live, the free society that we live in, we are hardwired to believe that personal freedom is our highest good. Okay? We all believe that inherently. But friends, we are the church. And there must come a time when our Christianity confronts our cultural adaptation. If I know that there, there is a weaker brother among us that is tempted by the exercise of my freedom, but I keep doing it, I am not loving that brother, and I am sinning against Jesus. I am sinning against him and then the brother. So think of those that we know well. Here's a helpful question as you relate with that brother or sister. Do I love them more than blank? Do I love them more than my attempts at humor that they find borderline insulting? Do I love them more than the, the political beliefs I love to talk about? Do I love them more than the music that I want to listen to when we're riding together? Do I love them more than airing my grievances behind every keyboard that I can get my fingers on? Do I love my brother more than food? Now, next week, chapter 9, Paul is going to use himself as an example of, of explaining how to exercise one's rights. Then in chapter 10, he's going to give a very good reason why not to eat in an idol's temple. But here he simply wants to leave us with this thought. This is for us today. Friends, where is the gold thread? Where is the gold thread? What is the leaven of our fellowship? So we receive the bread of God's word. And now together... We're going to receive the bread of fellowship with Christ. So Aaron, would you please come and lead us in the Lord's Supper?